We've got a couple of readings today. We're going to get to the Great Commission um, as we're going through from the Easter story. We're following on all the way through to the Great Commission, the Ascension, and we'll end up at Pentecost. So we're in the Great Commission today, where Jesus charges his disciples. Um, but it has a lot of overlap with a lot of other parts of Scripture, as you'd expect with anything Jesus says. Uh, but we're going to read initially in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and the words should appear on the screen behind me, uh, chapter 10 from verse 12, before we get to the portion in Matthew. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 from verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to observe all the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you for your own good? To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. And then we get to our uh, text today in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 28, right at the end. Matthew chapter 28 from verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. And we give thanks to God for this reading of his own holy and inspired word to his name. Be every praise. We've just had the resurrection, had Jesus appearing to his disciples at least once. There's, there's a lot of attempts being made to synthesize the various uh, post-resurrection accounts of Jesus appearing. But we know the disciples have seen him at least once, maybe several times by now. He seems to appear again and again and try and get the message to them about the, the way they're to now think of things again and again. And it takes a few attempts um, by all accounts. But Matthew's been foreshadowing this all through his gospel. Matthew's particularly writing to his Jewish audience. He's really interested in trying to get people to see this is the Jewish Messiah. This is the guy that the Jews have long been expecting all through their trials and difficulties of being exiled and being, having foreign rule imposed on them and being a vassal state for a much greater power. And he's trying to get them to see that this is your deliverer. This is the one whom your scriptures and your prophets have been speaking of. And so in uh, 16, chapter 16, we have Jesus saying that he is going to give them the sign of Jonah. He's going to be three days in the belly of the earth, and then he's going to rise again. And we even have him directly prophesying his own death and resurrection in Matthew, more directly in chapter 16, 20, and uh, even back in 26. And he's concerned 
with revealing this so that they'll connect everything that they'd understood about their faith to this one man. Uh, Matthew opens his gospel with Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David. There are two, uh, two of their amazing pivotal figures who they understood their identity and their history through, and he was bringing it all to a conclusion in Jesus, and ultimately as, of course, the son of God. And so we have him here wrapping up his whole gospel, but at the very end of it, and everything he's got to say, he's showing in a way how perfectly he fulfills uh, his sonship and his identity as the one who was expected in those lines. And we have this specific direction for them, to the 11 disciples, to go to Galilee. Uh, the night of the crucifixion, they'd been told, Jesus ahead of time said, go and wait for me in Galilee. Now, it appeared to them before they uh, end up in Galilee, but Galilee was important for their ministry. Galilee was an important place for Jesus. And in a sense, this is where the story with Jesus is going to finish with them as he sends them out now to go and do the work in his absence on earth. He said, after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. And even the angel we have recorded told the disciples who appeared, tell my brothers to go to Galilee in 2018. Uh, sorry, in Mark 16. And Jesus unveiled his public ministry in Galilee. This was significant because this is where he started to work his miracles. And Galilee was a totally despised region. It inherited a history where it was known for being mixed in with Gentiles, and it was seen by pure pharisaical types as being uh, pretty impure, as being somewhere totally undesirable, a bit like we have places in our geography which I'm not going to name any specific ones at the risk of offending, but places certainly in Glasgow and the Central Belt, we think, oh, well, nothing good ever comes from there. But this is where God chose to work, and this is where God chose to commission his disciples to start the most effective kingdom that there ever has been. This seems to be the way God works. In fact, so many revivals, so many powerful, uh, impactful works of God have happened in places that perhaps on worldly standards we would often look down on. And Glasgow certainly has a history of that. And Scotland has a history of that because our ways are not God's ways. And the things that we esteem and we think are brilliant are not always what God looks for. And that seems to be some of the markers around Galilee that we have of why it's significant to Jesus and the disciples. And they're told to go to Galilee, so they travel there after they've presumably seen him in Jerusalem to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And they saw him and they worshipped him, but some doubted. And this is all the kind of prelude to the Great Commission. And they worshipped him and some doubted. It's, I guess, a strange phrase, a surprising one. You know, Jesus is there bodily. Surely they're going to be in awe. Surely if he's appeared to them before and he traveled through a locked door and he showed them his hands on his feet... Why are any of them still doubting? Why would anyone doubt Jesus? It seems to be intrinsic to our human experience. We don't always have perfect faith. My goodness, the disciples don't even have perfect faith with the, de the demonstrations and the signs that they were given. And I think Matthew records this so wonderfully so that it's an encouragement to us. You know, doubting is human. Doubting and difficulty and struggling and wrestling with our faith is human and is a normal, uh, just a completely normative experience. It's part and partial of how we go through our discipleship. You know, the disciples' struggles, weaknesses, and failures are never hidden from us. 
I think that's deliberate, and I think that's encouraging, because some were worshiping, but some doubted. And Jesus is big enough to handle their doubts and our doubts, and that's what he demonstrates here. He doesn't stop for a minute for the Great Commission and go, right, like, let me sort out all your doubts. And No, he goes on ahead with it anyway. Some doubt it, and that's okay, and Jesus can handle that, and he can work through and in our doubts. And you might object and say, oh, well, James says a, a doubting person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And that's so often abused as a verse that says you can never have any doubts. That means somebody who's going, I don't know if I bother with Christianity or just keep making up my own religion or try and save myself. It's not talking about people who are committed to being disciples of Jesus and have doubts and struggles from time to time. Jesus could handle the doubts, and he still can. And then we get to the Great Commission, the Great Charge, and such a famous verse, such uh, powerful words from Jesus that just strike a match that set alight the course of the church in human history in many ways ever since. Jesus does this in a specific form, though. Jesus, as the embodiment of all the prophetic words that had ever been spoken, Jesus, as the fulfillment of all Scripture, uses covenantal language. Covenant, just an agreement between God and humans, which he'd been making all along, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. God had been making covenants through Abraham and Noah and David. And the covenants are so important because they form the spine of the Bible of how God progressively reveals himself and what he's doing with this whole human project, with this whole relationship he has with the highest of his creation, me and you, the human beings. And so Jesus reveals himself. In some ways, this is the last word on all the covenants. He's putting a seal on them all by revealing himself in this way. He charges them in the form of an Old Testament covenant to show there's total continuity with what God's been doing all along. To, and the whole point of them, what, why are there covenants? Why does God deal with people? Because he's redeeming a people from evil and the mess of the world to himself, to be his dwelling partners for eternity. So there's three marks of this great commission and the covenant and the way Jesus reveals it. Firstly, as there often was in the Old Testament, there's God's self-revelation. He says who he is. And then secondly, there's God makes a commandment. And then thirdly, God makes a promise. And so just for a little while now, I hope to walk through these as the Holy Spirit helps us. Firstly, God's self-revelation. He begins at Jesus came to them. He draws near to them. Maybe they would have fought off. Maybe they were still freaked out and they didn't quite know how to take him. But Jesus draws near to them. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is a powerful declaration. Uh, the word Jesus uses for authority, exousia, it means uh, total power without opposition. All authority has been given to him. And this can beg the question, well, as we were thinking about when do the disciples become disciples? When do we become disciples? When did Jesus get his authority? Is this him saying, now that I've risen from the dead, all authority has been given to me? Or did he kind of have it all along. Well, the interesting thing about the word is that Matthew uses it all over his gospel. Matthew uses this word for when Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Matthew uses this word for when Jesus has power over the evil that's in creation by casting out sin and sickness and demons. And he uses 
this authority in terms of what people react to that think they think Jesus in the likes of Matthew 9 is amazing because he has this authority. And he uses this word for the authority that Jesus has as he teaches people about God and the scriptures in a way that none of their other religious leaders were able to teach them. It's the authority that he has. And so I think there's a reasonable case to be made that Jesus had this authority all along. And the disciples are blessed to be in the moment and in the wake of his resurrection where it's all being completely revealed. The authority and the power that he had. God made the heavens and the earth. They as Jews would have understood that. They would have had a very high view of the creation. And here's Jesus saying, over all of that creation, I have complete power. He, you see, God made the heavens and the earth good. And it was his to rule over. And he's now saying, I'm rightfully taking my place. In a sense, Jesus is enthroning himself. They would have probably thought of the passage in Daniel where Jesus kept referring to throughout his ministry as the son of man. Amazing words in Daniel 7, where Daniel says, I looked in my vision and there was before me one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power on all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. I think it's almost certain that the disciples, given he called himself the Son of Man, would have thought of, he is that figure. He is the one whom God has prophesied through centuries ago that would come and would have all power and authority over absolutely everything, and nothing would stand opposed to him. And we saw back in the passage we read in Deuteronomy that God had actually all the way back to Moses revealed himself as the one who dwelt in the highest heaven and who was Lord and supreme ruler over all. We start to see just how weighty a claim Jesus is making uh, without any qualification or reservation. He's saying, I'm the I am from the Old Testament, the self-existent one, the one who gave Moses the law, the one to whom rightfully all authority belongs. He said all that authority always was his. And now he's saying to his disciples, this is how you're to go because you're going in my name. And if I own everything, if I own all creation, heaven and earth included, you go in my name and you go under that cover and under that blanket. The same power that formed creation is the one in which I'm sending you. He couldn't have given a stronger, more emphatic demonstration of that with the words he used. And he's talking about heaven and earth. And we sometimes get tripped up over these terms. What does he mean by authority in heaven and earth? And we tend to think sometimes in rigid categories of, well, you know, heaven is a very kind of spirit thing, very far away, and earth is here, and never the twain shall meet. And his followers, disciples, probably wouldn't have understood it that way. And I think the Bible becomes all the more richer when we uh, tap in to discover the interplay between heaven and earth. They would have in a Jewish understanding, probably thought of the heavens as more the dwelling of God, not so much a geographical place far away where you go where you die, but where God dwells uh, in his purity, in his holiness, in his brilliance, especially in the highest heaven where he dwells unopposed, where there is no darkness or no shade of sin that can or uh, wickedness in any way oppose him or impinge upon his character. And earth here as his good creation and as everything that he made. And they would have actually had an understanding that the heavens and the earth actually interlock in quite a special way. That's what their temple was all about. That's where heaven and earth especially come to interlock. God's character, goodness, purity, 
dwelling in a place and a space in his earth. And Jesus' claim is that he is that God in the highest heaven. He dwells there and he governs from there. And the whole point is, is now that goodness of his rule and his kingdom is coming to dwell in the creation and the earth and coming to spread out in the creation and the earth by the disciples. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I've got this authority and it's now time for the authority that dwells in the goodness of heaven, of God himself, to begin to really spread out and to take back what was lost at the fall, which they would have all been so so familiar for. So Jesus is setting himself up as the one who has complete power, control, and authority, who dwells in heaven, who is God himself, and is now bringing the rule of heaven over onto earth in a way like it hasn't been done before. So he makes an emphatic revelation of God, and that's what he means by his authority. So he is authority, and it's been given to him. And then we go on to the charge or the commandment. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Quite a lot is often made of the command, therefore, go. Uh, Sometimes that's seen as the centrality of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And what's interesting is, is reading it in the Greek, it's kind of the go, but serves as almost the less, lesser important part of the sentence, of the clause. It's subordinate. It serves the rest of what's being said. The most important thing is, is that people are sent. Uh, sometimes this is used as a text to completely support world missions. And um, it actually can't do that all by itself because the emphasis in the sentence isn't so much in the go, it's in the make disciples. That's the really emphatic part of it. Uh, so a better sense of the term would be go or stay or whatever you are, as long as what you're doing is you're making disciples. That's his real charge to the disciples. And yeah, they're to go to all the nations, but uh, the nations is ethnos. It means different peoples, um, people who are like you, people who are unlike you, all kinds of people. That's the whole point. And when you fast forward right to the end of the picture in Revelation 22, that's God's big idea. It was always that this would flower and mushroom out and spread out and take in people from every kind of cultural background, from every kind of nationality, from every kind of persuasion of life. And so he's saying the essential component is get on with making disciples, get in the game. Engage with where the enemy has taken so much rule and authority here on this earth, where the ground game has really been lost ever since the fall. And this is how my authority is going to go out and spread out, by making disciples here on this earth. Therefore, go and make disciples is the stress in the sentence. And how important is that for us today? Because in some sense, we live in the wake and in the church and the heritage of this statement. This is the one where this is the flashpoint at which the disciples started going out and then they go to Pentecost and the gospel goes out everywhere to different kinds of languages and cultures for the first ever time. God's plan is taking in different kinds of people and that's why we're here today. And it's such a helpful reminder to go, why we're here is to keep making disciples because it's disciples that keep taking authoritatively ground for God here on earth. That's how heaven keeps invading earth by people doing this, by people worshiping Jesus and observing all the the commands that he's given, namely loving. 
that's where the stress falls. So the church is just so unlike any, anything else in the world because we're not a country club, because we're not a political organization, because we're not lots of things. We're a collection of disciples who have met Jesus. And why we're here is we want to keep making disciples. We want people to keep meeting Jesus and keep walking and following with him. A disciple is just a learner. That's it. That's what they were in the ancient world, people who traveled around with their master, learning at their feet. And it just means the same thing today, that we're continually in a process of learning at Jesus' feet in community with other people. But that discipleship has certain markers. And so then we have the seal of the covenant, baptism. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's so much. It's fascinating when you read. In fact, a, a, another word for Old and New Testament is Old and New Covenant in the original language. So there's so much continuity between what God did then and what God is doing now. It's the same God. Massive differences, but a lot of continuity. There was a sign of the Old Covenant, circumcision. That's why we're baptized today. An outward sign that we belong to this God. And interesting, he says, uh, and it's in the original language too, in the name of singular, not names. God is one, just like in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The name of the Father, and they would have an understanding of God as Father, as Jews, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, uh, they would have understood as the power and the Spirit of God that was present at creation back in Genesis 1, hovering over everything. The Spirit that brought chaos, uh, that brought order out of chaos. And Jesus has inserted himself right there in the middle. There's where the Son of Man is. What's the implication? He is one with God. And there are other religions and other traditions in Christianity that are built on that Jesus was just a really good man or at some point became the Son of God. And he's making a claim here is actually that Spirit that was there at creation. I'm one with God. He is God. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's how we're brought into God's covenant people. That's how we're marked as being part of this family, of this thing that God is doing, this him spreading his authority all throughout the world. And then this is what's so interesting. Uh, and teaching them, this is what they do, is they teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So you're outwardly marked. And this is the important part, is that then there's teaching, then there's instruction, then there's obeying commandments, obeying law. And it's so helpful. I just love how Jesus never tries to get around this and corrects so many of our distortions because the gospel can become so grace-laden that it's like it doesn't matter what you do. If you accepted Jesus into your heart, well, you'll go to heaven, you'll be a Christian forever, and you can do what you want. And no, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. That actually sounds a lot like the Old Testament, and it is. And that's the important point that we, we never stop walking this tightrope as Christians because we encounter Jesus because of his overwhelming love and his grace and realizing that he has called us into his family. As we read in Deuteronomy 10, he has set his affection on us. And then we obey the commandments from that place. What else can we do but love him back by walking in the ways that he has set for us? And this gets all out of balance in two ways. This gets out of balance when we're obeying because we're hoping in some ways it are in favor with God, in some ways it guarantees our position and our status before Him or our destiny with Him eternally. And that's not right. And then 
And the other distortion is just, as I said earlier, it's just to go, well, it doesn't matter what, I don't actually have to obey any commandments of God. Both are a distortion, and we are so wise to go back to what Jesus said, is that we're saved by grace, we're brought in by his grace and love that we can do nothing to earn, and then we obey him because he set his affection on us, because we love him, because we want to do what he says. And ultimately, it's for our good. That's why God gave commandments. It was for the good of the children of Israel. It would bless and benefit and build them up. And as we have read as well, it would be for the benefit of everybody around them because God loves his creation and his good is their ultimate aim. And perhaps we need a fresh view of this grace today so that we can understand where the law fits in in our lives. That we obey not because we want to earn God's favor, but because we already have God's favor teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, holiness personally is so important and we want to grow in that and we want to be like God, but it's so much more than just keeping moral precepts, than avoiding certain behaviors and thoughts. You know, when we read that passage in Deuteronomy, it talked about love for the fatherless, care for the alien, for the stranger, for the person who is completely, you know, outside of our camp and our tribe, Obeying God is always holistic. It's always expressed in love outwards towards others. Because if Jesus is saying, talking about people being taught to obey commandments, well, what did he say was the greatest commandment? To love God and then also love others with absolutely everything that we have. And so loving service is so important as a part of our discipleship as well as our growth and knowledge. Because as he says here, we're to be taught, we're to grow in our understanding of who God is and how we honor him personally, but also how we care for the people he's put around us. But also how we reach across and show something of what God's shown us. Do you know why God instructed his Old Testament people to care for the foreigner? Because all of us were foreigners to God. There's none of us that are born come out of the women we uh, belong to God intrinsically and we keep his law perfectly and are therefore accepted. But we are all foreigners and he takes us in as orphans. And so all he's doing is saying, replicate that to other people. And they might not deserve it, but you've got to show it. And so observing everything I've commanded you is a way him restating, observe the law, love God, and then love others as an expression of the law. And I'm teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so he reveals his authority, the self-revelation. He goes on to command and give an instruction with what they're to do everywhere they go. And then, finally, he gives a promise. As all the good covenants had, he says, Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is an old, old promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. You know what God promised Abraham? I myself will be your reward. He promised him children, and he promised him lands, and he promised him that all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And the disciples are getting to live in the very early days of how that's going to happen. But above all, ultimately, he promised him that he would be his God, and that God himself would be his reward. Friends, the presence of God, there is no promise like this. You know, everybody in some way or other is searching for this, People look for this in all kinds of ways, in their pleasures and pastimes, in their success in their careers, in sex and power. 
And we're all looking for God because we're all made in his image. And he's promising his own disciples, his own people, I am with you. In Jeremiah, he said when the new covenant would come that I will be their God and they will be my people. And this makes discipleship so precious because in some sense it would be too hard without this. You know, just to have to go and do this and do it without God. In fact, back when God is making a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, Moses actually said, I don't want to go unless you're coming with us. In some sense, this is the most precious thing about it all, is it's only worth having. It's only worth walking this road if we know God is with us, if we know he goes before us. And the disciples were going to need this. They were going to face a lot of opposition, persecution, intensely for what they believed and what they were doing in Jesus' name. But he promised them that he would never leave them. And you know, sometimes uh, Professor McLeod says we have a tendency in the church to get this backwards, that we'll go and we'll do the disciple-making bit, you know, once we get a bit more of the presence of God in here, once, uh, and he says, no, that, that's backwards. He's, what he's, he's saying is, go out in faith, uh, make disciples, tell people about Jesus, live life with them, share with them your journey of discipleship, and you will find that God is already there. You will find that His presence accompanies you when you do all of that. I think that can be scary for all of us, uh, whether we're in the church and we work as part of the church or not. But what an amazing promise. You know, if you're worried about sharing your faith with someone, or you're worried if you feel like God might be calling you to something or some new direction in your life, and you're not sure if he's going to be there at the other end. And the guarantee is if you're stepping out in faith and in response to his call to be a disciple, he is there. He will be there, and he's already there ahead of us, comforting us, encouraging us, being present by his very spirit within us, which we're going to learn about more in the coming weeks as Pentecost comes. So today, wherever we are on our discipleship journey, probably the most great precious truth that we can remember is this promise that he is with us, that he will never leave us, and he'll be with us for eternity, and that he's calling us just now to go. And we do that with his authority, because he is God himself, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of every covenant, and the God who rose from the dead. And he's with us in all we do. May God bless his word to us today. I'm going to pray as I invite the band to come back up.